This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Our weather is changing, with extremes in heat, cold, wind and rain all becoming more common. The summer of 2022 saw extreme droughts and blistering temperatures in many areas of the UK, which was followed by a wet autumn and a winter with freezing temperatures like we've not seen in decades. The weather is becoming unpredictable, and if you're a gardener, extremely challenging to cope with. Hello, I'm Kevin, and today I'm chatting to the nation's head gardener, Monty Don, about how weather extremes are changing the way we garden. Just how is the weather impacting Monty's own garden, Longmeadow? And what is he going to need to do differently in years to come? I started by asking Monty what a predictable year of weather used to look like. We first came here 32 years ago. And for the first 10 years we were here at least, there was a pretty reliable pattern of certainly frost by the middle of October. To have frost in September wasn't rare. It wasn't ideal, but you you prepared for it. You certainly expected at least four or five frosts in October. And then with uncanny regularity, the second week of November, you really got some cold weather. And it'd be, you know, minus five, six, seven uh, for a week or two. And that would be the end of the flowering year. That was absolutely it. And we put the garden to bed. And then the weather would warm up and we'd have wet, miserable December always. 
And just when you were thinking the weather was mild and you were sort of getting used to it, you'd have a cold January and February. And then you go into March, which was a bit of everything. And spring would come in April and be spring-like in a sort of conventional way through to May. And summer would be a bit wetter than you wanted it to be, a bit cooler than you wanted it to be, but summery. And so we'd go. And that was the round. And, you know, you could plan. You could plan around that. This is British weather, so invariably... There was an exception to every rule almost every day. But but the seasonal variations were pretty constant. And then, I mean, when did things start to change? I know that's probably a tricky thing to pinpoint, but I mean, certainly I know from my own garden and certainly what I've experienced over the past couple of years, um, there's no predictability at all really anymore. But I mean, can you can you think about when you started to notice things were different? As a gardener, as I'm, I'm sure you and our listeners will share, it's, it's usually noticing when things flower at unusual times. So, for example, as a boy, one of the sort of absolute rhythms and rituals of the year was on Good Friday, we would go and gather primroses from the nearby woods to decorate the church and the graveyard, and the village would go, and there would be maybe 10 of 15 of us. And depending when Easter fell, there either were lots of primroses, or it was a bit early for primroses, or it was late for primroses. And if Easter was early, you barely had enough to decorate the church. If there was big land of primroses, you did the graveyard as well. Now, our primroses are flowering before Christmas. And if Easter is late, primroses are over. They're gone completely. So, the primrose flowering season has come forward dramatically. Um, for example, I had tulips, tulip West Point, which is an early tulip, but not exceptionally so, in full flower in our orchard uh, on March the 30th this year. Oh, crumbs, that's so early, isn't it? It's so early. And, and it's, it hasn't even been a particularly warm winter. So the flowering seasons have come forward, I would say, on average, between 10 days and two weeks over the last quarter of a century, 25 years. Uh, so that that's a big thing. I think also in terms of actual weather, it's absolutely, as you said, it's the erratic nature of it. You know, I mean, the weather is getting wetter, it's getting colder, it's getting warmer, it's getting drier, it's doing all these contradictory things, uh, rather than the rhythm that we had. I mean, I, as a boy loved cricket in summer and it was it was always a question of praying it wasn't going to rain and it was very rare to have a hot dry period for more than 10 days say you know you were lucky to get two weeks for hot dry if you went on holiday you know we always used to go camping and things and go on holiday to the seaside always in britain and invariably you got wet weather and cold weather but it was never sort of torrential it, it wasn't biblical no. I mean, the last summer, I mean, I garden in uh, in Essex, not far from, from Beth Chateau, actually. So a very different kind of, <laughs> you know, UK climate to the, the garden you have. But crumbs, last summer, I honestly thought at points, well, this is it. I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm going to have to really, really rethink everything. You know, there was so much that just didn't do anything. And I just wasn't sure how to cope with the intensity of the heat. And you must have found much the same, I'm guessing, with, with the extremes. We did. 
And in fact, we are now changing the garden as a result. And we're both doing it. I'm doing it privately and we're doing it on, on Gardener's World as a sort of ongoing project that will take years to, to complete. I, For example, I now think that uh, tender perennials are not viable for me because for years we lifted them and stored them. But now, and we stored, for example, bananas in the pot, in the tool shed, and we dahlias in another shed, and we only heated one greenhouse, uh, and that's where we put, you know, things that, that actually, as much as anything else, to keep the display going over winter. This year, for example, um, despite heating costing ten pounds plus a day, it got down to minus seven inside the greenhouse. And it was minus 15 outside it. So we were just losing plants anyway, and, and as well as filling out space and, and the whole thing. So I now think we have to change our whole approach to planting, which, you know, my generation was brought up on a summer display that you would introduce plants, you'd sink plants, you, you, you know, there was, a, there was a round about mid-May, you would have a whole new repertoire of plants uh, from all over the world, and they were wonderful, and you'd grow them. And depending where you lived, you lifted them, or you stored them, or you mulched them, or you fleeced them, or you did whatever it took. And we have the added problem, not only the cold in winter and the drought in summer, but we have this extreme drought in summer, and then we have extreme wet in winter, and that's which you don't get where you are. And we just we had a temperature difference this last year of fifty-two degrees. I mean, it's that's just staggering, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that you expect in desert conditions over, you know, from night to day. It's it's crazy, yeah, absolutely crazy. Well, it's, there are very few plants that are comfortable with that. They tend to be plants, continental plants rather than coastal plants. They tend to be herbaceous. They cope basically by retreating and I think that's what we have to do uh, and that's what we are doing here at Longmeadow we are changing our planting now we're still growing lots of tender annuals which is fine we have lots of bulbs although we lost a lot of bulbs this year uh, in pots because the rain was so heavy they were sitting on hard standing even though they're in very gritty compost, and it just simply wasn't draining enough. There were some that were in cold frames, and the cold frames flooded. So they sat for about a week in water, and that was enough to rot the bulbs and the pots. Well, that was the same even over here. Actually, I had uh, some tete-a-tete, you'd think, as tough as old boots. You know, they'll they'll get through, and they just didn't appear this, this spring, and there we go. Funnily enough, tete-a-tete were the worst affected of all our daffodils. Uh, we lost a lot of iris, um, which was very sad because I love those early irises. And tete-a-tete, we have, oh, I must, we had something like three dozen pots of, and I think about four survived. It was a total massacre. Well, it makes me feel a little, it makes me feel a little bit better if, if it happened to you as well as well, me. <laughs> I, I, I think probably because it's a relatively small bulb. I think the smaller bulbs are much more susceptible. But for instance, on Saturday, I moved all our tulip bulbs, which we have in pots, we have big pots, into position. You know, I'm fairly strong and fit. They were weighed a ton because they were sodden. Yes, yes. They were really heavy. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, God, well, they seem to be okay. But so that, you know, this is all detail that we're dealing with. But I think going back to your original question, 
as gardeners, we are now is the time, and I think last summer was the catalyst, when we just have to accept that not only is climate changing, but our gardens are changing. So up till now, I think we've been trying to garden despite climate change. Do the same thing and either water more or plant differently or protect more. I now think that we simply can't go on doing that and we have to change. You know, and and that's that. And I think that as creative gardeners and as in sort of resourceful people, we have to see it as an opportunity. It's something that will lead to interesting things rather than as a loss. Yes, I understand completely. I mean, last summer, as I say, I I took the decision, okay, I can't try and combat this. I can't possibly water enough. There's nothing I can do. So I didn't. And as a result, I suffered losses. Similarly, with the energy crisis as it is at the moment, I this was the year I decided not to heat my greenhouse. Well, what a mistake that was. <laughs> so, so, but that's fine. You know, I made that choice and I'm going to have to think about doing things differently as a result. So, you know, there's, there's an opportunity as well, as much as it being, you know, sort of unsettling. Um, it's quite exciting too, I think. It is. I mean, if you look at the history of gardening, greenhouses evolved in the 17th century uh, because, amongst other things, Coal was starting to be mined and shipped down south so people could heat buildings to store their greens, their tender greens. And and right through the 18th and 19th and well into the 20th century, coal was was the way you heated it. I mean, I grew up in a house that had a Victorian uh, greenhouse with a boiler that was heated by coke and and coal. And we wheeled down in a wheelbarrow and and, and it was delivered. I mean, you know, I'm getting old, but that was 60 years ago. So in my lifetime, I can remember that. Well, nobody would do that now. Nobody at all, even if they could afford it. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. And I seriously thought of putting a wood-burning stove into my big greenhouse as a way to try and fuel it. But then the flu would have cost more than the stove and so on and so forth. As it is, gas was costing me over £10 a day not to heat it sufficiently. It was over 70 quid a week, to lose plants. Well, there comes a point when it's cheaper just to buy new plants. And that's saying something, given how expensive plants have got. So, so, so the point is, for all of us, however you look at it, however you come at it, we can't keep going as we are, you know, unless you're a billionaire and you just want to do that. But none of us are. I think there are two roads we go down. Either we, we take the view of, say, American gardeners in the Midwest where, you know, you get winters that are absolutely consistently the equivalent of minus 20, minus 30, and in summer it can get up to to sort of 40, in the 40s. So therefore, basically nothing grows uh, other than a few evergreens in, in winter and in summer, it's the same thing. Or we have to change our timing on when we do things. This goes back to the, the primroses flowering. is we change our seasons, our garden seasons. I think the other thing is, do we start treating plants that were perennials more as annuals? So you know how that the trade grows all the pelagoniums from cuttings and doesn't, you know, you only keep mother plants and you, you don't, whereas most of us keep our pelagoniums going year after year after year. Well, maybe if you take that view, say salvias, for example, just take cuttings, ditch the parent plant, 
you know, keep the cuttings and that sort of thing. So you, you can focus your storage, therefore your heating, on a relatively small area. You know, you bubble wrap or insulate how you can, a little bit of heating. And I mean, this is, this is sort of micromanaging, but I think that's the way we have to think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Well, we're in unprecedented times, aren't we, really? I mean, this is new territory for, for all of us. And it's almost impossible to plan, isn't it? You know, the unpredictability of, of things. It's actually a little bit tricky to know what's going to come down the road from one year to next. I mean, I would... I don't know. I'm kind of thinking ahead to this year, thinking, well, we can't have one like last year. But, you know, that's that's just not possible. But who knows what's going to be thrown at us? Who knows? <laughs> but I, I think the other thing also about climate, as opposed to weather, it's a trend. And in that trend, you can get big variation. But part of the problem we have is the variation within the year. So, for example, even if we do have a mild summer that's fairly wet that wouldn't stop us having a very wet winter or a very cold winter. And if and last winter, for example, here, not this one, but winter of 21 and 22, was exceptionally mild here. I think that not only are we, we dealing with this slow wave, which is unquestionably happening everywhere, but the difference in pattern, which is goes back to your original question, is unmanageable the only thing that we know is to expect the unexpected. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the one thing is we shouldn't be gloomy about it. You know, it's it's not the death of gardening. But I was brought up gardening, very much influenced um, by what happened in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. That Those were my sort of, you know, these were people who were mature gardeners when I was a boy and, and coming through. And, of course, with hindsight, that was the heyday of cheap plants, of the growth of garden centres, of uh, plants from all over the world coming in, cheap transport. So in other words, you could say, well, maybe that was actually a blip. That was, that was the exception. And what we're going back to is something where plants are a bit more expensive, a bit harder to get hold of. You know, it's, it's, we're judging things from an unusual perspective. It's 
really interesting because actually it's almost like you know the rise of convenience foods in that same yeah. in that same time period you it know is. we thought it was they thought they were marvelous at, at that particular time but now um we don't think quite the same yeah. thing no, anymore. No, completely so i mean my my mother who you know came through the war and was rationing and and we always grew everything and we cooked everything loved couldn't wait to get a freezer and have sort of ready meals and all the rest of it she thought it was fantastic and yet she was a really good old-fashioned cook you know yeah (laughs) yeah uh, yeah yeah no it's, it's it's very interesting i hadn't i hadn't thought of it like that um now we're thinking you know we're talking a lot about plants we're gardeners so that's where that's the start point for everything but you know gardening is is about more than plants and i wondered if you've got a view really on what it's doing for other living creatures so this change in weather um that we're seeing so for for garden wildlife or pests and diseases you know all of those other things that we we share our garden with. yeah it's very interesting that um I started to notice about, where are we now, 2023, about 10 years ago, an increase in fungal problems here at Longmeadow. And that was a result of wetter, warmer summers. We were getting, and wetter, warmer winters. We were getting soft, sappy growth in summer, and we weren't getting the hard dieback that we needed in winter. And here, because of the wetness we have, Fungus was our biggest problem, really, of various sorts. I mean, box blight was a very dramatic one, but there there were others, plenty of others that we had. So that definitely is a change. In terms of, I mean, going to the other extreme, wood pigeons never used to be a huge problem here. I mean, they were around and they existed, but they are one of the few birds that breed all the year round. They will nest and have young in the middle of winter. And because, by and large, our winters have got milder, uh, we have more of them. So they've become a bigger problem. Yet, at the same time, starlings almost disappeared. They're actually starting to come back. But they used to be a problem we had. Uh, Last summer, all our soft fruit was eaten because it was so dry that the birds were desperate for moisture And they were eating the soft fruit long before it was ripe for the moisture they held. I have a a real antipathy against the expression pests because it implies it's a very garden-centric way of looking at the natural world. And I think both on a human level and as a gardening level, we need to be much more inclusive and much see ourselves as part of the natural world rather than dominating it and everything else being subservient to us. However, like everybody else, I don't like to see my garden trashed by any other creature, be it a, you know, a mole digging up the grass or, or aphids eating something or, or whatever it might be. I think the thing that we, we miss most in terms of garden hygiene, that therefore creatures, whether they be at a bacterial level or physical, is sustained periods of cold, what we're getting are short periods of extreme cold. But what has really changed, certainly since my childhood, is where you get weeks and weeks of cold. And that was a very healthy thing for a garden. And that that's the biggest difference in my lifetime. You know, it was completely usual 50 years ago to have a good, a cold month, well, usually January or February. But it would be, and, you know, you'd go to school and it would be slippery. And 
sort of football be cancelled because the pitch was too hard and it was unsafe and so on and so forth. Now that is the exception rather than the rule. And I think a lot of things are surviving winter that didn't survive before. By the same token, in the garden terms, the bird life is good because they are, they're not having to cope with the cold in the same way. And, you know, like, for example, all this spring, I've had a black cap coming to our bird table. Well, they were overwintering, and it's overwintered over winter. That's very recent. That's only in the last 10 years they've started to do that. You know, I, I, I don't want to paint a picture of gloom and doom. I, I just think it's different. I don't think it's necessarily worse. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. And, you know, I'm excited actually about the opportunity to do something different. I mean, I've I've been in my garden for 10 years, so a third of the time <laughs> that yeah, that you've been at Longmeadow, but during that time I've had a set way of doing things. And actually, I'm feeling a little bit tired of it. I think the garden's a bit tired of it, and actually, well, there's no greater catalyst, I, I think, actually, than than this. So, so no, I, I with you actually. I, I don't think we do need to be sad and gloomy about it. I mean, there will be, and I was going to ask you, you know, there will be some plants that I will be very sad not to grow anymore, and I'm going to have to make that choice. I mean, I know you mentioned tender perennials, but is there anything? you know, that you've always grown, always have really loved, but actually you think, well, I'm going to have to say goodbye to that at some point. Well, I mean, going to the extreme, uh, for the last 10, 15 years, I've always, things like the sort of great big bananas, the um, insetis, I'm not going to grow anymore. And yet they've been a really strong feature of of the jewel garden. Uh, And that that goes along, as I was saying, with cannas. Um, We... We will... Uh, gingers, actually, it's funny enough, it's, it's not a, an important plant, but I really love gingers. And, and when they flower... Last year in the drought, they flowered, didn't start to flower till September. And they grew half the size that they were. Well, there's no point in growing gingers unless you get, you get the flowers, you know, which for years have, have, have been a really good feature of the jewel garden. Sweet peas, of course, for total washout last year. <laughs> you know, they stopped flowering about June. and um... Dreadful, absolutely dreadful. <laughs> uh, but you see, up till last year, I used to long for a drought. We, we loved droughts in this side of the country because it was usually too wet. So to be a bit short of water was a kind of luxury. The, the very fact that we could pad around outside in, in bare feet or sandals was unheard of rather than sloshing in mud. So... You know, I, I would say be very careful what you wish for. Because <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. <laughs> uh, I think in terms of, of vegetables, it's getting hard for me. If, if it's very dry here and hot, you know, if you can't water, then your things bolt. I mean, I always grow a lot of leafy vegetables from rocket and lettuce and spinach. And, uh, and if, if it gets too dry and hot, they just bolt and leeks will bolt very, very quickly. But sweet corn was fantastic last year. The squashes were fantastic. Tomatoes were good. It's a slightly different palette or cuisine, maybe in this case, but not impossible. But it goes back to what I was saying in changing our timetable, because I think that maybe we just have to plant a little bit earlier or plant a bit later. We are now still 
Longmeadow is still fully functioning at every level well into November now. Whereas when we first came here, basically bonfire night, November the 5th, doors shut, garden closed down. That was it. You know, we we'd then spend the next two or three weeks tidying the garden up for winter. And quite frankly, December, we hardly gardened at all. I mean, it was over. We did nothing. And then you started again in mid-January, sort of sowing seeds and sorting out and doing your pruning and, and, and so on. So maybe we just have to say, well, okay, we can go on growing vegetables in well into November. There are still flowers. I mean, there are still roses in November. There are still cosmos. There's still, um, it's diminishing because the light is going so rapidly. But, but actually, in terms of autumn, autumn is stretching towards Christmas increasingly. I mean, I think when you talk about edibles and, and crops and things from the veg garden and stuff, as you say, the timing and the, and the palette might be slightly different, but there's always good years and bad years for everything, isn't there? <laughs> so, you know, we are used to that. Yeah, you take it in your stride. But then, you see, the other thing is, is things like varieties. So, for example, I planted a lot of apples 25-odd years ago. I would choose completely different varieties now if I was doing it. Um, I would be thinking very much about ripening, about the ability to cope with, with water levels, size of rootstock, so that you know, you, if you've got a great big tree, it's going to want a lot more water. So I would have you know, more dwarfing rootstock. I probably have slightly wider spacing, so each tree had more chance to, to take nutrients and water. In other words, management, horticultural management can deal with that. And, and and I think that's true for a lot of things. I think the choice of varieties is, is going to be really important and size and timing and, and what you expect from the harvest. Of course. And, you know, there will be, um, you know, all the, all the growers and nursery people up and down the land will be um, responding to this as well, won't they? So we're, we're not no, in no, this no. alone. My great interest at the moment in the broader public is trying to enthuse and maybe advise younger gardeners and and particularly the age group of my children which is sort of 25 to 40 when in my generation we all were getting homes and houses and therefore gardens and could apply it of course for them it's very different increasingly they don't have access to these things but they want to do it and and their, their way of gardening be it with houseplants or with sort of allotments or shared gardens or whatever it might be but they are the ones who are going to have to deal with these changing circumstances but without the benefit of someone like me who's got a lot of hindsight to sort of put it into perspective you know i can remember for example gardening in the summer of 76 which was really hot and dry so last summer was very similar it was it was a very similar experience well Nobody under 50 is going to remember that. Of course, of so course. It's, it's, it's no good talking to them, so, oh, just like 76. It could be 80, 1876 for all the meaning it has to somebody you know, younger. <laughs> so what I think is interesting is that that particular generation who themselves are starting to have children are going to have to use their ingenuity and skill and acquire knowledge to be flexible and to adapt and as you know, and as the thing that those of us who've gardened all our lives 
find endlessly fascinating is that there is no one answer. There is no one way. You can do something exactly the same for four years in a row, and then on the fifth year, it won't work. Um, I remember many years ago, I wanted to write a book. This was in the late 70s, about head gardeners who were a dying breed. Back then, I started to meet a few head gardeners, and I realised, and they were all in, you know, the youngest was about 65 and the oldest about 85. So they had been born at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, and they had all been trained in a very, very old school, uh, which had totally disappeared by the Second World War and and was really, they were dying. And I wanted to get their stories. And I was sort of 22, 23, and thought, Jack the Lad, thought I knew it, and I'd gone, and and so on and so forth. And I remember one head gardener saying to me, I came up through the system, I was a star, I did everything well, I, I became a head gardener at the age of 35, and he said that one of my specialities, and he was in a big house, and he provided them all the food and the flowers, he said, I used to grow mushrooms, and not many people could grow mushrooms as well as I did, and I always did them, and I had them there. He said, one year, it just didn't happen. It just didn't work. And I had no idea what I'd done wrong. He said, for the first time, I had to really think about it. Instead of just doing it and it working, I had to really start to think about alternatives. And he said, that's when I started to be a good gardener. And I think for us, all that you're describing is we're having to start to think about it rather than just learning how to do it and doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are things that we absolutely can do and are in our control as well. So, you know, you've mentioned watering. Well, is everybody harvesting and and saving as much water as they can? I'm with you that perhaps we we need to stop or reduce our watering from mains water. But, you know, if we can harvest water, that will really help us. You know, there are things we can do, aren't there? We've all done pieces about fitting a water butt. But one of the things we all learned last year was a water butt's great as long as it's full. Quite. <laughs> but when it's empty, of course, there's <laughs> exactly. no way to refill it. <laughs> so a water butt is fine on a small scale when you know there's going to be rain next week. But if you've got drought, it's pretty meaningless. Whereas this garden in Greece that, that I've been working on, uh, they all have systems, underground systems because they are so used to not having rain for three months at a time or more. I mean, it's, it's a big jump, but every new house that was built, certainly over the last century, would have a system if it possibly could. Maybe we should be thinking, you know, if we can put in a septic tank, we can put in a system. Of course. I know that, you know, housing developers, they're, they're looking at all sorts of things now that, you know, they have to do. And of course, they should do as they develop new communities and stuff. And, and, maybe this is all part of it as well. We have so many more hard surfaces now than we used to have. The runoff is is huge. Even just front gardens being parking spaces has created vast new runoff areas. And that's always going, you know, it's going to a street, it's going to sewers, it's disappearing. The biggest problem, I think, with all this is that there is a tendency to try and police it which A, doesn't work very well, B, costs money, and C, puts people's backs up. What we have to do, and and the likes of you and maybe even me, we have to inform and inspire people to do it themselves, to want to do it, to see it as an opportunity rather than a chore or burden or an obligation. 
And I think that's the big shift, is, is it goes back to the central question of, of climate and weather changing, is that we have to change with it rather than try and fend it or, or cope. We have to change our language and our whole way of thinking about it. And I think that is happening, but it's slow. And of course, to filter down to putting things like putting in a system, we're a long way from that. But it'll come, I think. I think it will come. And I, I'm very encouraged, for example, you know, I think the fact that the RHS is starting to include this in, in their gardens and, and, and how that's going on. The fact that it's now de rigueur when we're working on the programme, you know, we, we think about things like how we use plastic, how we use peat, how we store water, how we can save money on heating. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely part of the conversation, always. Which, as you know, absolutely wasn't the case even 10 years ago. Uh, no, quite, quite. I um, have been, you know, working for the, the magazine for getting on for a couple of decades. And um, actually, this is fairly recent thinking, actually, or certainly recent that it being normal to talk about all of this stuff. And, yeah, you know, exactly. um, for sure. Exactly. For sure. I've been an organic gardener, well, all my gardening life. And uh, I was sort of part of various groups and uh, one thing or another. And at best, the gardening establishment tolerated it as a slight sort of eccentricity. And at worst, saw it as a form of either threat or ignorance. They, they were not receptive at all. Now, I don't, it's not really a discussion. I mean, how you interpret it, it may be up for discussion, but, but I think it's generally accepted that most of us, the vast majority of people, would like to do as little harm as possible to, to the wildlife and, and to plants. And I think that's the same in, in terms of, of how weather is affecting everything. Our whole relationship with the natural world, from sunshine to hedgehogs, has changed. I think lockdown was a catalyst, undoubtedly. And I think that the most interesting aspect of this, and this relates to why gardens are about so much more than gardening, is that for whatever reason, the political world is not capable of solving all our problems, certainly not climate change, let alone all the other problems. And that's nothing to do with party politics. It's just to do with the nature of, of it. So therefore, we have to, we can't dissolve that responsibility. We have to deal with it. And one of the ways we deal with climate change and with weather and with, with all the attendant sort of pests and problems is in our gardens is day to day, is how we manage it. And it's absolutely, literally hands on. And I think that's very interesting. It's empowering, it's troubling, it's awe-inspiring, and, you know, it's at times it's good fun. So now I'm interested talking about the day to day, and we are we're we're coming close to being out of time. But it's April at the moment. What's the weather like at Long Meadow now? What are you dealing with? Is it's it doing, doing what it's meant to? <laughs> I'm sitting indoors talking to you with beautiful sunshine outside. It was a frost last night. Uh, the first frost we've had for quite a few weeks. It's been very wet and miserable here for weeks. We filmed last week, and it rained and rained and rained, and um, it was pretty miserable. We had snow about a month or so ago. We had about a week of snow, quite a lot. And But now we've got lovely blue sky. I'm looking out at the window and uh, it's glorious. And, you know, it's spring. It doesn't matter what the weather 
the climate is doing this or that. You can't stop April being spring. You can't stop May being that wonderful, blossomy, full May. You know, so you know, like every gardener, I want to be outside. I don't care if it's raining or if it's windy or or whatever. The one thing I do care about, and I, I'm very glad to see the back of, are the dark, gloomy days. And at this time of year, of course, what's so joyful is it doesn't get dark here till eight o'clock now. So. And and it's it's light, so it starts to get light about six, and very soon that will be five. So so that where there's light, there's hope. <laughs> well, that's that's a very it's a very lovely place to end. And I think your notion that whatever the weather throws at us, we'll still garden, won't we? Absolutely. So. <laughs> oh, no, no, absolutely. And and I think that that's the challenge. I mean, how as you know, I've travelled a great deal, and. I've seen gardens up the Amazon, I've seen gardens in the desert, I've seen gardens in the Arctic Circle, I've seen gardens on rooftops in Manhattan and, and all over the world. And that people's ingenuity will always come through. The, the need to garden, the need to nurture plants, the need to create beauty is irrepressible. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. 